turning to the New Testament Gospel of John, John chapter 4, John chapter 4. Shortly before the recent Olympics in China, I had an opportunity to make a trip to that nation. Many of you remember Brother Jeremy was on our staff team. We were able to go there and minister to some missionaries, and, and we had a great trip. I was glad to be able to have a first eyewitness account of what's happening in that country. China's an amazing nation with an amazing history, and, and uh, it's just it, it's something to watch and see how they're literally taking the world over. We know that they recently passed Japan as the second largest economy in the world, and uh, they're rapidly closing in on the United States, and of course, they, they own us in a sense, don't we? I understood some of the money we borrowed recently from them was to pay interest on money we'd already borrowed, and I don't know how it all works, but it's an amazing, amazing country. And what adds to this for me is the reality that I've been told that in Beijing, and as recently as the 80s, there were no buildings larger than eight stories. That was as far as, as they could take them at that time. Some have been there more than I have and, and, and say that's the truth. That's, that's the way it is. It's no longer that way. It's an amazing place. Beijing is a city filled with high-rise buildings everywhere, and they're not just simple buildings. The architecture is absolutely amazing. It's, it's unbelievable. And I remember making my way around the city and, and looking and be, being just absolutely amazed by it all, but I noticed there were other parts of the city where just for miles on end, you'd see these uh, whitewashed walls, very nice, very clean, and, and uh, everywhere I went, I saw these walls, everywhere. And uh, it was interesting to me, I took note of that, but I found out that uh, uh, some, sometimes those walls were hiding a story that, that you couldn't altogether see, it wasn't readily available. If you look behind the walls, you would find the poorer parts of towns, the part that wasn't uh, as up-to-date as, as the rest. You would find people with needs and, and more of the common type of what you'd think in the traditional sense of, of the life there. Now, uh, I, I understand what they were doing because it's something we all do. They were trying to look better than they were. The world was coming in to observe the Olympics, and they were trying to portray themselves as, as a little better than they were. And we saw that even in the opening ceremonies for the Olympics. If you'll recollect, and some of you will remember this immediately, there was a, a, a cute little girl that came out and just beautifully sang the Chinese national anthem, and we discovered that she wasn't the singer at all. The, the girl on the left sang. The girl on the right was the one who was on the TV production. And uh, when asked why that was so, literally the official from the government government said, well, I mean, obviously, the girl on the left, she's not as cute as the girl on the right, and, and furthermore, her teeth aren't straight. And so they said, all right, we'll put the girl on the right out there. The girl on the left can sing. The girl on the right will be the face of it all. And, and the effort, the attempt was this. We want to look better than we are. We want to appear to be doing more than what is being done. And it, it degenerated to something that was more about style than substance or more about form than than function. It was a desire to look good. Now, I say all that to say we're in the midst of a study on the topic of worship. And if anything will bring an incredibly empty sense to our personal worship, it'll be that mindset that says, you know, I want to act like something that I'm not. I want to portray myself to be more than something I am in reality. You see, when it comes to worship, we don't want to play the part. And certainly God is is God. He, he can see right into our worship. And, and above all, He wants a worship that is authentic, that is sincere. And here's the thought I want us to get a hold of today. God is looking for worship that's true. It's true. 
you're able today, I'd like to invite you to join me in standing out of respect for the reading of God's Word. We've looked at the heart of worship and we've learned there's a right way to worship God. And the Bible told us that there's a vain way or an empty way, a wrong way to worship. And, and we have all learned in, in this study that when it comes to worship, we want to make sure that the heart is right in it. The heart is right. And so we come to a, a passage today in John 4. And it's, it's a text that chronicles the story of a person who is totally lost in life. Absolutely living in what the Bible would call, what we would characterize as sin. As this person is confused as anybody can be about the meaning of life. But, but the beautiful part of this text is the fact that Jesus Christ, God, the Son, made his way to her and met her need. And she went in life from just a worship because everybody lives for something. She went from a life of worship to a life of true worship. And we're going to read more verses than we typically do today, but I want us to get into the text and, and uh, I, I want us to hear what it is the Lord is saying. John chapter 4 and verse 4, the Bible says, And he, speaking of Jesus, must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied in his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. I'm going to read on. We, we understand that Jesus was 100% God, 100% man, all at the same time. Now that doesn't work well mathematically, but that's what theologians call that hypostatic union. That's the, the terminology. Jesus was all God and he was all man. And I love the fact that we have a testimony here in scripture that that humanity part, that, that, that part that we can relate to a little more tangibly, it became weary. And Jesus took a break. He, he took a rest. We find him here and he's, he's at this well and, and he decides this is a good, good time, good place to just take a break. Verse 7. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith woman of Samaria unto him, how is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And it's important for our understanding this passage, we understand that fact right there. Jews and Samaritans, they, they didn't mix well. Verse 10. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman said unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. This water, meaning this water here in the well. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Now again, I'll read on. Jesus here is saying in essence to this, this lady, uh, uh, you should have asked me for water. She said, well, what are you talking about? You don't have a bucket with a rope on it. How are you going to get water out of the well? And Jesus said, oh, you've got to understand the water that I'm talking about is water that you, you can take it and you'll never again thirst. It, it will meet your need. And of course, she's speaking spiritually. 
And uh, let's look at her response in verse 15. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. She says, in other words, I get tired of walking away this well just to get some water. Give me some of that kind, you know. And she missed it. Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus saith unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly. The woman saith unto him, uh, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. He's knowing things about her that she can't figure out. How would anybody know this? Verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and he say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So now she's getting in a theological argument. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me. The hour cometh when he shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of or from the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. I want you to go back, if you would please, to verse 23. And there's an expression in there that uh, we'll build our thought around today. The, the Bible says, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers. Now I want us to think of that. Jesus here speaks of the true worshipers. And uh, we, we've discovered everyone's going to worship something in life. Some people worship themselves. Some people worship the almighty dollars. Some people, you know, uh, there's any number of things we can worship. And then we talk about even as we worship God, there's the right way and the wrong way. If you'll recollect the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus said they had a vain and empty worship. So they were attempting to worship God, but going about it in the wrong way. So Jesus here speaks of of a heart that longs to worship God, but, but it can be done so in, in a way that is characterized as true worship. With the help of God today, we can all come to understand what this means a little bit more. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us, for an opportunity to study. and I pray you'd help me, Lord. Help me to say those things that you'd have me to, and, and uh, may our hearts be opened up. We need you. We ask this prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Maybe seated. I don't know what the little girls of the time dreamed about when they looked down the road into their lives, but I can guarantee you that the lady that we met in this text today did not have her dreams come true. Nobody would have planned to have a, a series of, of uh, marriages that ended in difficulty. Nobody would have planned the life that she had. It, it was a life, I'm sure, that if her dreams didn't uh, come to fruition as she anticipated, it was a life that she would have been disappointed with herself. She evaluated who she was and what she had done. She, she would have felt badly about that. Furthermore, she would have understood that other people, as they evaluated her life, they would have been disappointed in her. And so she not only felt bad about where she was in life, she knew that other people felt bad about where she was in life. And, and it wasn't a great situation. Every day she'd take the walk to this well and she'd draw the water and haul it back to where she lived. And that would have given her ample time to think about her life and think of the missed opportunities and, and those occasions that really just led to heartbreak. But on this day she met someone different. In fact, she 
met the most important someone that anybody can meet. She met Jesus Christ. This was the day her life went from worship, just worship, to true worship. It, it ended up to be the greatest day in her entire life. It all started in our opening verse when the Bible says, and he must needs go through Samaria. It's speaking of Jesus. Now, listen, I'm not correcting the Bible, but I want to make the point that Jesus didn't really need to go through Samaria. And by that, I mean being a Jew going through that part of the world that was inhabited by Samaritans. It, it was an uncommon journey. He, he could have found a way to go around that region. What, what made this a need for him was the fact that he knew there was a lady there that, that had some difficulties in life and, and she needed some love. And so a divine appointment was established. And in keeping with that appointment, he made his way to that region. He went out of his way to help this lady. Jesus chose to make that journey. As we think of this, we'll see today the first element is the affection and worship. The affection. The Bible said that Jesus just had to go there. And I want you to know what took him there. It was love. He was the instigator, the prime mover, the initiator, and in a relationship with this lady. And we see that it was love that took him there. That's just how he is. In Matthew 18, 11, the Bible says, For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. And I want us to understand today, this lady in this text, she was lost. She was as lost as lost could be. She didn't have hardly anything figured out about life. She was someone who was struggling in so many ways. In fact, the Bible lets us know that she was lost in her relationships. We can understand that in verses 16 through 18 here in our text. The Bible says that Jesus said to her, Go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I, I don't have a husband. I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, and that thou saidst thou truly. You see, things had not gone for well for her in the, the department of relationships, all right? She had not done well. She was lost in that sense. No idea what it would take to uh, make a home in that type of relationship work. She was lost in her reasoning. Remember verse 19 that we read? The Bible says there, the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive thou art a prophet. But she was wrong about that. She didn't understand who Jesus is. She looked at Jesus and she said, You're different. I perceive, I reason, I conclude that you're a prophet. And friends, I want you to know that if we don't understand who Jesus is, if we can't put that in perspective the way it needs to be, nothing else is going to work. So she was lost in her relationships. She was lost in her reasoning because she did not know anything about Jesus Christ. She, she thought he's just a good man. He's just a prophet. And I want you to know today, Jesus was neither a good man nor a prophet. If he was not God, because he lived his entire life telling people he was. And so he was either a liar, he was just out of his mind, he was crazy, but we can't come to the conclusion that many people would say, well, you know, I don't want to actually become a Christian, so I'll just say, well, you know, Jesus, I just think he was a really good guy. He wasn't a good guy if he wasn't God. And so her relationships were not right and her reasoning was not right. She thought, well, Jesus, he's, he's just apparently a prophet. And I want you to see that she was lost in her religion. In verse 20, she said, Our fathers worship this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. You see, she was holding on to a religion while Jesus wasn't offering her religion. He was offering 
her relationship. And it's interesting to me, she really had no connection with God. She just had an affiliation with the religion. And, and rather than letting the truth come to a place that could draw her, she, she thought, well, I'll get in a theological argument with, with God. I'll tell him about my religion. Maybe that will impress him. And, and Jesus made the point clear. Listen, I didn't come here to bring a religion. I, I came here to save people who are lost. She was lost in her relationships, in her reasoning, in her religion. Yet we find that Jesus came to her. As lost as lost could be. Yet he came to her. I, I want to make the point today that he didn't tell her, listen, get your life straight. You're all messed up. Good night. L -l Look at your track record here. This is terrible. What have you done? And, and uh, uh, you, you don't know a lot. You're trying to argue with me about theology, but you don't know very much. That's obvious by what it is you said. Not only is what she said wrong, the facts were not correct. And, and he could have said, listen, here's what you need to do. You need to go get things squared away in your own life. You need to get all your wrongs made right and then come and talk to me. But that's not at all what Jesus said. Because he knows we're all incapable of doing life right without him. And so he, in essence, said, I'll come to you to help you. One of the best people I've met in all my life is my granddad. He's in heaven now. And uh, we used to spend summers together, and we would just fish and fish and fish. I'm telling you, man, he taught me how to fish in the Rocky Mountains, and we'd go to those streams, and, and uh, I still love to fish, and that's my favorite place to do it. And uh, I, I remember so many great, great memories we made there. But, you know, I learned in the course of, of fishing up there that you never do catch a fish that you can pull right out of the water and just immediately set in a frying pan. There's a few things that have to happen first. A uh, few parts of that fish you'd rather not consume. At least we wouldn't, right? And so you, you got to do a little work on them. You got to clean them and you got to do those types of things. But you can't do those things until you catch them. There's kind of an order there. And that's kind of how God is with us. He doesn't tell us to clean ourselves up and then come to him. He says, I got to catch you before I can clean you to use that analogy. He, he, he wants to work in our lives. He longs to do in our lives a great work, but none of that can begin until he has us, so to speak. Once you know that God is not repulsed by our need. In love, he's attracted to our need. He comes to us when we are lost. Matthew 15 and 24 says, But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, he was making the point, I, I didn't come just for this group or that group or this person or that person. I'm here for everybody. And there's only one thing that can bring a perfect, holy, righteous God into the lives of people as bad as this lady and as bad as me. And as bad as all of us, there's only one thing that would bring a God into our lives, across our paths, and that's love. I know it's trite, we hear that word a lot, but it's love. I like the story of a medieval monk who had announced to his church he was going to be bringing a sermon on the topic of the love of God. Being back in the olden days in a very dark church building, it was all candlelight. So people walked in and he asked that all the candles be put out except for the one candle he was holding. Now I prefer a cross that does not portray the image of Christ on it. My reasoning for that is he didn't stay on the cross. He's alive. 
Okay, what makes the cross beautiful for me is the fact he's not on it anymore. He was crucified, but he rose again. But I understand that uh, some traditions are different. And the tradition in this particular church was to have a large crucifix with with a portrayal of Jesus Christ in his agony. And so he had all the all the candles put out with the one in his hand. And then he. He walked over to that crucifix and with that candle, he let the light shine on on the crown of thorns. And it showed the blood that was streaming down his face, at, le- at least the sculptor's rendition of it all. He took the candle down and showed the hands of Christ with the spikes driven through. And just slowly made his, made his way from hand to hand and to the side where the spear was thrust into Christ. Made his way down to the feet where the spikes were driven through the feet. And the story says after that he just blew the one candle, his candle, out and left for there was just nothing else to be said. Every testimony we have from God is a God who's gone not just out of his way in the sense of going to Samaria when he didn't have to. He came to earth for us. Everything that God has done is just screaming to us that he loves us. Verse 23 in our text says this, the father seeketh such to worship him. He seeks us out. It's love that leads to worship, and that love begins with the love of God. We see the affection in worship, but we also find in this text the avenue of worship. Verse 24 says this, God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit. Now, I know we have a hard time relating to the spiritual, but it deals with something that is authentic on the inside, that makes its way to the outside. It comes from the essence of of who we are and what we believe. And our beliefs always, our beliefs always are seen in our behavior. Somebody could say, well, I believe this way. Well, if their life is a different way, they really don't hold that to be true. Our beliefs always reveal our behavior. And so in in, in authentic worship, this matter of worshiping in the spirit is a worship that in reality is coming from our heart to the heart of God. Now, the religious people of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes that we studied about earlier, they worshiped in a way that could not be characterized as spiritual. In fact, the Bible would refer to it as carnal or fleshly. They would worship in such a way that other people would see them and hear them and think, wow, they're awesome. And Jesus makes a point, no, 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 that's not what it's all about. In Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, the Bible says, And he spake this parable, and the certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and and despised others. So we've got Jesus here telling his story. Here's the story he tells. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, and the other a publican. Now I'm going to read on, but Jesus says, all right, I'm telling a story about two guys. One's a Pharisee and one's a publican. And just, just to help us understand who he's talking about, the Pharisee, it might be similar in our day to saying, this is a really religious guy, maybe a preacher type. This is somebody that, that uh, uh, all the time is looking good in that kind of sense. And the publican, that's the guy we would have all agreed, that's the bad guy. That's the real sinning guy. That's the guy nobody uh, wants to associate with. So Jesus says, I'm telling you a story. And and it's about two guys who go to a temple. One's a Pharisee. The other's a publican. And then he says this. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not as other men are. Then he goes on to tell us about how he thinks the other men are. Extortioners and unjust and adulterers. Or even as this publican. Okay, so 
He's praying in the temple, and here's his prayer. God, I just want to thank you that I'm way better than everybody else. Like this guy, for example. I'm so glad I'm not like him. Just wanted to thank you for that, God. Quite a prayer. He went on to tell God how great he was. He said, because, you know, I, I fast twice in a week, and I give tithes of all that I possess. The verses go on to say this, and the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's his whole prayer. His whole prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. You see, real worship is not about place or posture. It's about the attitude of our heart. It's spiritual. I think of the psalmist, Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17. The Bible says, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would have given it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. David was saying, in essence, God, if you wanted an offering, I'd give that to you. But that's not what you're looking for. You're looking for a heart that is soft before you, that has been broken up before you. You're looking for a spiritual worship. Our heart's right in it all. He's not looking for some type of a spiritual ruse where we put on. No, I'm not suggesting that how we worship is unimportant. But the more important is the heart from which the worship comes. I heard a story this week of a dad. He had a son getting ready to turn six. And he asked his son, what do you want for your birthday? And his son was always very, very specific. He expected to hear something like, you know, uh, dad, I'd really like to get a ball glove. It's aisle six at Toys R Us right under the batting helmet. You know, it's a very, very specific kid. He's always thinking ahead. He always knew everything he wanted for Christmas and his birthday. And the dad asked and, and uh, he thought it would be something really, really specific. And, and his son said, you know, dad, I'd, I'd really like a ball for my birthday. And dad said, well, son, there's a lot of different kinds of balls. I mean, what kind do you want? And, and the boy said, well, dad, if you have time to play with me this year, what I really want is a football. But footballs are only fun if we can throw it back and forth. He said, and if you're too busy to play with me, then I'd like a soccer ball because I can kick that against the wall. And the dad listened to that, you know, and he said, how about I surprise you, son? And he went and shared that with his wife, and they agreed that their son at this point, he wasn't so much interested in the gift as he was the giver. He was saying, in essence, Dad, let me tell you what I really want. In essence, he was saying, I, I really want you. And that is the heart for which God is seeking. Again, King David in Psalm 27 and verse 4 said, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David said, let me tell you the one thing I want from God. And we're thinking, what, is it money? Is it fame? What do you want from God? He said, I just want to spend time with him. I just want to be with him. That's what I want. That's the heart of it all. So we see the avenue of worship, but I want us today to see finally the absolute in worship, the absolute. The Bible said in verse 24, we saw a moment ago, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit. And here's the absolute. The Bible says, and in truth, 
You see, once our heart is sincere, we have to get our head squared away. We have to understand the truth is there for us. The truth is available. We can know the truth. And it's ironic to me that we live in this day of information overload. If you've got a computer accessible to you, you can find out about any piece of information you'd like to know. We've got all this information in the world, but so few people today know the truth. In fact, the intellects of our time, the PhDs of our time, would be the ones to say things to us like this. Well, truth is really relative. What's right for you may not be right for someone else. And the way it's done in one place, it might be right for them. And the way it's done in another place, it may be right for you. And although there's a small shred of truth in some of what they're saying, what they're saying is this. There are no moral absolutes. There's no right and wrong. There's, there's no uh, right way or wrong way. There's just your way and my way. And hey, there might be some differences. And, and let me tell you the problem with that line of thinking. It's wrong. It's not true. They can so muddy the waters that they'll get us thinking, there, there's no one right way to have a family. You know, you say husband and wife, I say husband and husband. Hey, there's right and wrong. Come on, guys. You're a little old-fashioned for that, aren't you? And they can, they can rationalize every shred of truth away. Truth exists, the Bible tells us, in Christ. And in the Bible itself, John 8 and verse 32 says, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And that fact elevates our worship to the point that it grows beyond emotionalism into a deeper understanding. You see, as we come to know Christ and as we come to know the Bible, we can know who we're worshiping and we can know how we're to worship and we can know why we are worshiping. Why? It's all anchored in truth. I remember when I was a boy, our family spent some time in, in South Korea. My parents were missionaries there. And, and I remember when we first got there, a lot of the talk was, I just can't believe how open these people are to the gospel. And I remember hearing people say, you know, about anybody you talk to, if they'll just listen long enough, they'll, they'll pray a prayer to accept Jesus Christ. Now, I remember one particular young man, my dad presented the truth of the gospel to him, and he readily accepted, and everybody was happy, and he invited our family over to his uh, house for dinner, and so we went over there, and, and uh, as we were there, he's happy we're here, we're, we're happy we're there, and uh, he says to my dad, Moksanim, teacher, come here. He took him to a part of the house, and, and in that part of the house, the, the only way I could explain it, it was attached to his wall. It was a, a big altar. And on that altar, he had, he had uh, many idols, and he had a picture of a loved one who had died. And then on one side, he, he had the latest edition. He had a picture of Jesus Christ. And he said, now I have Jesus, too. And that's when we realized, you know, we've got to disconnect here somewhere. Truth is not found in adding Jesus to everything else. Truth is found in Jesus and him alone. Acts 4 and verse 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby ye must be saved. You see, you don't add Jesus to what you have to find the truth. Truth, in terms of real worship, true worship, is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is the admission of our need in response to his love. It is faith in the work that Jesus did on the cross. Now, it's hard to get through John chapter 4 without sharing the great story. It's one of the classic passages in sharing the gospel, and that's not the heart of our study today. We're studying true worship, and what happens after the text that we've read is amazing. Let me give you the rest of the story in this lady's life that we're not going to cover today. 
she meets Jesus Christ in a sense she accepts him as the Messiah, as God. And her life is radically transformed. You see a joy emerge. In fact, she goes back to her town and tells everybody about Jesus Christ and they get saved and, and God uses her life in a great way. I mean, this lady, and I'm not trying to be unkind, but this lady who, just using the world system, if we were to evaluate her, we'd, we'd say she, she's a mess up about every which way. And, and this lady, when she came to know Jesus Christ, he radically transformed her life and used her in a profound and meaningful way. That's God for you. That's how he works. She experienced the affection of worship and she understood the avenue of worship and she accepted the absolute in worship and it changed her life. It changed the way she lived. Heard a story of a noted conductor. I say noted. I've never heard of him. Perhaps you have. A conductor by the name of Reichel. He had a choir and an orchestra and and as they were going through their final rehearsal for Handel's Messiah, they came to a place where a soprano soloist uh, entered into the refrain where she was to begin singing. And, and she sang those words, I know that my Redeemer liveth. If, if you've heard the Messiah, uh, you, you would know the part I'm talking about. And she sang that, I know my Redeemer liveth. She sang it with flawless technique, perfect, perfect breathing, clear enunciation. She did just a great job. And everyone looked at this conductor to, to see his approval. They all wanted to see his response to it all. And after she sang that part, he, he stopped the music and, and he went over and said, My daughter, you do not really know that your Redeemer lives, do you? And she kind of nervously said, Well, yes, I think I do. And say that the conductor then yelled at the top of his voice, Then sing like it. He went on to say to her, uh, tell it to me so that I'll know you have experienced the joy and the power of it. With emotion, the orchestra was again playing. The time for her solo again came and she sang it with all of her heart. And those that listened said there was a definite difference, a definite difference. I think sometimes people could say to followers of Christ, you don't really believe in him, do you? I mean, really? And we'd say, well, yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, I do. And I think the, the call from Christ today would be, then live like it. Then live like it. You see that singer, she, she sang it again, and I, and I want you to know that it didn't just look better or sound better, it was. Because it came from a heart. It wasn't a conspiracy. No, it was really better. It was from the heart and anchored in truth. And I'm afraid that all of us have a tendency to go through the motions of it all. And sometimes we try to make things look better or different than they are. But that is not true worship. True worship goes deeper still. It's the heart of faith that responds to the love of God. It's spiritual. It is true. And so I ask Again today, as we have throughout our study, how's your worship? How's your worship? Is it true? Is it true? And I think as we reflect on this today, I think the Lord can take, take this truth and all of us today can touch our hearts. It can help us to understand where we are and where it is we need to go. Are you living like it? Is it true worship? Our Father, thank you for this day.
your chance to learn. And I pray that you'd help us to not just evaluate this message, but let the, let the message evaluate us. God, I don't know why it is. It's true in my life. It was true in this lady's life. I'm, I'm sure it's true in, in all the lives seen here today. And in the face of truth, we oftentimes get defensive rather than accept it. And I pray that we would not brush the truth of this text off and leave the way we walked in. Help us. Thank you that, that you're the kind of God that is seeking such to worship you. Work now in our hearts, we pray. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And in a moment's time, we'll be on our way. But I wonder today, how's your worship? Maybe, maybe you're, you're here this morning and say, you know, Pastor, in all honesty, there's room for improvement. It would not always be immediately evident through my life of worship that I have a great faith in Christ. And I'm not judging you as you're not judging me, but as we look to the word, maybe today you'd say, Pastor, there's, there's room for growth. There's room for improvement in, in, in my spiritual life, in my worship. I wonder, are there those in the privacy of this, of this service who would just lift up a hand and say, you know, Pastor, that's where I'm at. I think there's some room for improvement there, and I, I'd like to grow in my true, true worship. Are there those like that this morning? Pastor, pray with me. Well, praise God, it's about everybody. Thanks so much. Now listen, maybe you're here today and, and you'd say, you know, Pastor, you, you talked about an authentic, a sincere, a true worship, and all of that flows by, from the life that has met Christ and knows Him. And, and, and that's, maybe that's where you're at today. You're just unsure of where you are with Christ. And let me, let me just cut to the chase and, and, and ask the question in a way that I think we could understand. Do you know for sure if your life were to end today that you'd spend eternity in heaven? Do you know for sure? Positive. No doubt. Not 99. Are you certain? Now, nowhere in the Bible does God tell us, get your life all squared away and then come to me and I'll help you out. That's not at all how it happens. He, he says, come to me and let me work in your life. Maybe you're here this morning and say, Pastor, the, the truth is I'm, I'm not 100% certain that that relationship's been established with God. And I'm not going to point anybody out or embarrass anybody, but maybe today in the privacy of this time, you too, as others have done, you'd be willing just to slip a hand up briefly and say, Pastor, that's me today. I'm just not sure where, where I'm at with, with this relationship with God. I'm not certain. Are there those today? Say, Pastor, pray with me. Pray with me. I'm not sure. Maybe there are other decisions to be made. You've been saved and... And maybe you've not yet been scripturally baptized, as the, as, uh, the Lord would share with us we should do. Maybe today you've uh, been led of God to unite with the Coastline family by way of membership. I hope that you'll follow the leading of the Lord. Would you be so kind as you join me in standing? Please, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. The music's playing. Brother Steve's going to come and lead us in a song of invitation in a moment. And if you know those words, I hope you'll sing along with them. But uh, really, this invitation is a time for us to speak to God.